This talk from Titus 1 verses 5 to 16 by Paul Harrington was the second keynote address at TGCA's 2022 National Conference. Paul Harrington is Rector and Senior Network Pastor of Trinity Church Adelaide and also serves on the TGCA Council. The title of the talk is Gospel Fueled Leadership. This is the headline of uh, the September edition of uh, Christianity Today article. It read like this. The 50 countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus in 2022. Essentially what it was doing, it was measuring uh, Christian persecution. So won't surprise you, top country came out was Afghanistan. I think second was North Korea. What was interesting was Nigeria moved up two spots to number seven. They interviewed a... Uh, a young Christian man in Nigeria, a guy called Manga, whose father had been beheaded by Boko Haram. And he said this, Once you're a Christian in Nigeria, your life is always on the line. Yeah, Nigeria is a tough place to do gospel ministry. Yeah, but persecution is not the only thing that makes gospel ministry tough. I remember having a return missionary around for a meal a person we'd known for a number of years, and he'd served overseas in a, a Bible college training students for quite a while. And in this candid moment uh, over this meal, uh, he turned to me and he said, he said, Paul, I think there are only five people in the whole country that I could trust. Uh, just that integrity and honesty weren't a cultural norm. He said that he expected every student in his theological college to cheat. That was his... Now, that's a tough place to make disciples, isn't it? Very, very challenging. I read another recent survey where 16,000 believers from countries across the globe were asked to name the spot that they thought was the most irreligious on the whole planet. Most common answer? Australia. That interesting. It is a tough place. We know it. It's a tough place to do ministry. And Crete, first century Crete, that was a tough place to do ministry. You see it. We've heard the verse already at verse 12 of chapter 1. One of Cretan prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And the Apostle Paul, uh, he's been culturally sensitive to make the point by appealing to one of their own philosophers. Epimenides, 6th century BC, and this same guy apparently said there were no wild beasts on Crete because you didn't need them because the inhabitants were wild animals, right? So one of their own. Paul, perhaps in a less culturally sensitive moment, piles in in verse 13, this saying is true, right? <laughs> he figures uh, that requires a full stop there. This, this culture was out of step with the gospel, gospel values, gospel lifestyle. That was just the reality and so Paul, he writes to Titus, uh, he's pioneering church planting in Crete, he's a builder, it's a young series of churches, believers have grown up in a non-Christian, anti-Christian culture, it rings bells, doesn't it? I mean, that's our context as well. They're under enormous pressure. So what does 
Paul tell Titus, what does Paul tell us, about how to do ministry in tough places? Well, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. Obviously, when Paul left Titus there, they'd partnered together in that work, but he knew the ministry was a bit all over the place. So how do you go about putting things in order? How do you go about setting things straight? Well, the key strategy, verse 5, it's by appointing elders in every town as I directed you. Now, I work on a team with uh, a number of staff members, lots of, lots of lay people. Most of the time, what I'm doing is offering advice and suggestions to staff about how to do ministry and leaving it to them to put those ideas into practice. You know, that's what I see, primarily a coaching sort of role. But sometimes it's clear that I'm not making a suggestion to staff and I'm saying, this is the way we're going to do it. Uh, and there are ways in which I, I make that very clear. When Paul says, I directed you, it's a phrase that he uses elsewhere, like 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, where he says, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. You see, the idea of appointing elders is not optional. Uh, it's what needs to happen. And then Paul goes on and tells Titus what to look for when it comes to appointing an elder or, in fact, anything, any person, I think, who takes up leadership in God's church. It's interesting how Don Carson wrote an article on Thamelios back in 2016. What he did was he analysed um, how eldership had been written on in various magazines and journals for a period of probably a decade leading up to that time. And he said basically the articles fell into four categories. Right, the first category... Uh, was about structures or authority or governance. That is, uh, lots of churches and denominations have an idea of what an elder should do in a church. Uh, some people have elders who are ruling, teaching and pastoral elders. There are some who have, you know, bishops, priests and deacons and, you know, everyone's got their... And look, I'm very happy for you to have that discussion with people over tea later on, right? That was one series of articles. Then there are other articles on the egalitarian, complementarian debate... There was a, a third set of articles, uh, become more recent, recently popular, about the plurality of eldership. And then there are a fourth category of articles about skills that you need for organising teams and uh, leading and running and casting vision and all that sort of stuff. And I think that while there's value in diving into some or more of those debates, I don't think it's the focus here in Titus. I don't think those debates are what are occupying Titus here in this letter. Because his emphasis is not on what elders do, their job description. His emphasis is on who elders are. And you see that from the list of behaviours that follow. So there are five characteristics that elders mustn't have. And there are six that they must have. And... The interesting thing is all these characteristics you can find elsewhere in the New Testament as expectations for uh, any Christian person, really, maybe with the exception of the teaching one. But I take it, therefore, that as we dive into this, it doesn't matter where you're sitting in leadership in your church, whatever role you have, however you do it, this is a chapter that has application for you. The way I've tended to use passages like Titus 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, you know, those uh, 
passages that have indicators about what you should be looking for in leaders. I've tended to use it as sort of a, um, a godliness checklist, you know, sort of the threshold tests for people getting into ministry. And I think if you do that, you won't go too far wrong. But again, I, I don't think that's the logic of this passage. So let me take you back to it to see if we can you know, understand how it unfolds for us. Two times in this first chapter, uh, we're told that leaders have to be blameless. Right, blameless. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless. And then in verse 7, an overseer must be blameless. Now, when you're a leader in God's church and you read blameless, uh, it makes you feel just a tad nervous, I think. And what we tend to do is we make some intuitive theological adjustments you know, because we, we know it can't mean sinless or perfect, right? We know that because we're well-trained, Bible people. We've got that. We know no one is without sin. So when it says blameless, what it's really saying is pretty blameless, Okay, that's what it must be saying. Or largely without blame. Or having a good reputation inside and outside the church. Or giving it your best shot. You know, like, what does blameless mean? I mean, how do you measure blameless at this point? If you get seven out of these 11 qualities, you pass. Or do you need a pass mark in all 11 of these qualities? And how does pass marks work? Because some seem to be yes, no answers, right? So husband and but one wife, right? That's either a yes or a no. You know, you're not on the spectrum here, you know. But when it comes to faithfulness or self-controlled or a lover of good, whoa, you know, where, where do you get to on that? How do you actually work that out? And I think it's because we actually don't hit this passage the right way or with the right lens. See, what is blameless? What does it mean? There are... Two other times in the New Testament where this word is used. Right? One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, and the, uh, the second time is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. It's in verse 22 the word's mentioned. I want to take you to Colossians 1 and those verses. Just have a listen to the way in which blameless is used. And I think it's used consistently with 1 Corinthians 1, and actually I think it's the same in Titus. Have a listen in or look at, look at your Bibles. Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Blameless. Do you hear what's going on there? Blameless at this in Colossians 1 is right standing with God because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's blameless. And when you come back to Titus chapter 1, uh, what are we looking for in Christian leadership? Well, aren't we looking for blameless people? People, leaders who know they are right with God because of what God has done for them in Christ. And notice how that fits in with the way in which the argument plays itself out here in the whole letter, but particularly in chapter 1. Back in verse 1, we looked at this morning, it gives us that, that blueprint summary of what it means to be a believer and therefore a Christian leader, 
that flows out of that. And Paul's task is to further the faith of God's elect, notice what he says, in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Leaders need this, a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And did you pick up the assessment of the false teachers at the other end of the chapter? They're the anti-leaders, right? Verse 16. They claim to know God, that is, they claim to have a knowledge of the truth, but by their actions, they deny him. It leads to godlessness. You see, it's flipping it the other way around. What are we looking for in Christian leaders? Friends, what we're looking for are people who are so captivated by the mercy and grace of God in their lives. That's what we're looking for. Uh, I, I have an office uh, in the city of Adelaide, and it's not far from Adelaide University. Sometimes what I do is I go for a walk along the River Torrens, which goes past that campus. When I go past uh, Adelaide University, often I find myself quite uh, emotionally choked as I go past it. And the reason is because uh, 40 plus years ago, I was converted as an undergraduate on that campus. And what I do is I, I just stop and I remember the extraordinary kindness of God towards me. I was running the opposite way from God. Uh, my life was a total shambles in all sorts of different ways. And God called me into his family for no other reason except his kindness. He secured me for all eternity because of what he'd done for me in his son. And friends, I have never recovered from his grace and mercy. And I hope I never will. Friends, this is the starting point in Christian leadership. This is the starting point in the Christian life. Knowing how privileged you are to be in the family of God. And Paul says, this is the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I really want to ask you, is this the knowledge of the truth that has captivated your heart and continues to do so and just fill you with joy and thankfulness because of God's kindness to you? Is this a reality for you? Is this what you look for when you're looking for people to serve in Christian ministry? People who are captivated by God's kindness to them, his mercy and his grace, undeserved. And then what happens is we start to see this played out in the, the verses that follow. So we turn to those 11 qualities in verses uh, 6 to 9. And they're contrasted with the false teachers who are essentially doing the opposite in verses 10 to 16. They're just sort of mirror images. And again, it's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not a checklist. Rather, it's a, it's a litmus test uh, that's thrown up for us to think about the nature and the character of people. And we see the qualities. They're grouped under three broad areas, you know, household... Uh, character and teaching, but they're like overlapping circles, right? They intersect. They're not meant to be held tightly, discreetly. How has the gospel impacted a household? Verse 6, well, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, 
a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Okay, I've been married to Sue for 40-plus years. Tick, done that one. Obviously, that's not what it's saying. See, isn't the issue whether the gospel has so taken hold in my life that I am faithful to this woman that I'm bound to and want her, above all else, uh, to grow like the Lord Jesus Christ and I serve her in any way I can so that that might happen. Isn't that what it's saying? And if I do that with my bride, won't I do it with the bride of Christ? Children who believe and are not out, out of control, you know, who aren't charged with being wild and disobedient. You know, I thought conversion was God's job, not mine. I mean, isn't this a verse that's, that's often caused agony uh, for people in Christian leadership and ministry? But isn't the point here that I'm so impacted by the gospel that above all else, you know, I want my children to know the Lord? My um, daughter, Kate, she was telling me a few months ago, she had a conversation with her daughter, my granddaughter, Lily. They were just doing some craft activity. And this seven-year-old Lily said to my daughter, uh, Mum, how can I know I'm a Christian? Okay. So Kate uh, just went through the gospel with her and explained how that worked. And she said, and, and Lily, if you'd like to, you can just pray to God and he will welcome you into his family. And Lily then responded by saying, Mum, why haven't you ever told me this before? Right? <laughs> At which point Kate found she had to extract herself from the room for just a few moments because she didn't think laughing in her daughter's face was probably a good move. And then she came back in and she said, uh, Lily, you know, would, you, would you like me to lead you in praying to God together? And Lily said, Oh, no, Mum, no need, I've already done it. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Sue and I, we are, we are first-generation believers. We, we are so thankful for God's kindness to us, but we are extraordinarily thankful for his kindness to our kids, and we are so thankful for the work he is doing in their children as they explain the gospel to them. Now, I know even as I say that, uh, I'm driving a stake into some of your hearts. Now, I'm not saying it with that intention. I know what a heartache it is for you when your children are not responding to the gospel or they've rejected the gospel. But here's the thing. I want leaders who have been so captured by the gospel that they want the people who are close to them to have that same experience of being captivated by the gospel and whose hearts ache if that is not the case that's what we want for Christian leaders we want it for your household you want it for God's household and it is such a contrast isn't it with the false teachers. Verse 11. 
who are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, lies that destroy. Then he goes on. You see, see the way in which the gospel shapes character, verse 7 and, uh, and following. Uh, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Hospitable, verse 8, you know, loving what's good, self-controlled, upright, holy, discipline. It's obvious, isn't it? Uh, Sue and I flew across to Adelaide. We had the, the mandatory safety uh, thingy that uh, the stewards put on for you. They explain, you know, uh, uh, what happens if uh, we're going down the Oxford Marksville Hound, how to attach your seatbelts, you know, where the exits are and the lights that will lead you to these exits and uh, the fact that you shouldn't smoke anywhere, even if you do it in the toilets, we will catch you, you know, like it's that's... Would you imagine that on my way to Adelaide this time, the steward was doing this demonstration with a lit cigarette hanging out the side of his mouth while he was explaining all these rules? It, it would make me think, just possibly, that he didn't believe what he was telling me. Just maybe. Friends, the gospel shapes... Behaviours. And each one of these behaviours that are mentioned here bears exploration, but the shape of it is so clear. It's the way leaders are to serve people around them. See, when, when do I get angry? It's normally when I get a block goal. It's all about me. When am I pushing too hard or being overbearing? No, it's because I want to get my own way, generally, and not be gracious to other people. Verse 7, it speaks about dishonest gain. And verse 11, the false teachers teach for dishonest gain. And primarily the, the idea here is with financial benefit in mind. But, you know, there can be lots of wrong reasons for doing ministry, lots of ways in which we have motives where we seek power or respect or control. And the problem centres on me and what I want for myself instead of God and his glory and his gospel. And the tells for this, they're always the same. Um, people start talking about their ministry, you know, my church, uh, my ministry, my, my, my. Well, I sometimes hear people talking about themselves in the third person. They're all just tells of a self-focus. But friends... In ministry, when you're grabbed by the gospel of grace, then what you do is serve others. And you see it in the flow of this chapter again. Paul sees himself, verse 1, as a slave. Our leaders are stewards of the gospel. They safeguard the gospel. They serve the people in their household. They serve the household of God. They give their lives to take the gospel to the lost. They're all behaviour checks on whether the gospel has grabbed hold. And then, of course, if this is all true, uh, then you'll teach the gospel of God's grace. The gospel of God's grace makes you right with him. The gospel of God's grace transforms your life. So, of course, leaders teach the gospel of God's grace because it's the means by which people are made right with God and their lives are transformed. You wouldn't do anything else, would you? Verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine 
and refute those who oppose it. Uh, Calvin, the 16th century reformer, he put it this way. He said, a church leader ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away the wolves and the thieves. Uh, If you're a leader among God's people, then you are to steward the gospel, guard it, nurture it, teach it. And of course, if you do that, you'll be in the crosshairs. But people's eternity is at stake, and that will always trump your personal comfort or reputation. What I'm going to do with the, uh, the few minutes that I've, I've got left over is try and take some of these, these things in this chapter and try and apply them to our thinking about gospel ministry in our context, in our situation as a nation. I think we need to keep constantly asking ourselves, what is at the heart of Christian ministry? And as a leader, what's at the heart of ministry? Uh, Sue and I had the great privilege in the late 90s of uh, uh, being overseas and particularly spending a significant amount of time in the United States. Uh, It was at a stage when the church growth was all a go. Uh, Church planting was just emerging. Uh, The seeker service culture was big. Purpose-driven church was making a big splash. That's the sort of scene that we crashed into. And as we moved around and looked at churches, went to conferences, let me say this this experience really helpfully plugged what I thought were a whole series of gaps that I had uh, that I didn't learn when I was at Bible college. And I don't think Bible college is designed to teach you necessarily. Uh, But it, it, it actually helped me think about how to use strategically resources, how to lead people well, how to cast vision, how to think about where we're going as a church to reach our city, our state, our nation for Christ. How did I develop the skills that would help me do that as well as I could? But here's the thing that I found disturbing about the whole trip as I came away. Uh, because I constantly heard people talking about what we were going to do for God and not what God had done for us. Friends, if you you are a leader, uh, whether you're in vocational ministry, whether you teach Sunday school, a Bible study, youth, parachurch, wherever you are, your main job is to remember what God has done for you in Christ and help others remember that too. That is the big drama you have to beat. There's nothing in Titus, largely nothing in the New Testament about casting vision or strategic leadership or leading teams or running meetings or delegation or skilling up as a good Bible teacher in an electronic age. You know, not, not much about that in the New Testament. Now, let me say I'm not against that. Don't hear me... Um, uh, saying that's, that's rubbish and a waste of time. I think if you are wanting to serve God's people, you'll work out what skills you have and how you're going to best use them in his service. So, of course, you'll do that. But hear me clearly, at best, that is a secondary or a tertiary issue. That's not the primary thing. See, how do you want your leadership to be assessed? I want to be seen as the visionary who could excite people or the strategist, helps people know where we're going, to be a wonderful preacher, 
uh, who communicates so well, uh, pastoral warmth that attracts people from miles. I mean, what do you want to, how do you want people to view your ministry? Friends, we want to be leaders who are gripped by the grace and the mercy of God. I've been leading uh, teams in churches now for over 30 years, and uh, this is what I've worked out. My big job is to ring the gospel bell. And if I do that, then I've done my job. That is the job. We had a person uh, visiting Adelaide uh, last month just to speak and do a few things, and they caught up with a number of the pastors in our network. And afterwards they were saying to me, you know, it's interesting, there's, there's a phrase that a lot of the pastors in the network use. They'll often uh, introduce a sentence by saying, in God's kindness. And you know, I was so pleased to hear that. Just that uh, the framing, it's not just saying it, don't even, anyone can say anything, but that that might be the, the sort of drumbeat for us as we think about church ministry. And I take it, that is, that is what we want to lead uh, in our churches and in our ministries. The second thing I want to just make a comment on is the, uh, the need to be running the Christian race. Pro- some of you will have been in uh, the seminar with Peter Adam and C.S. Tang where they're talking about running the race. Uh, so you can, have a, you can have a sleep at this point. I'm not going to say anything new, probably. Uh, in recent years, though, that. There have been really high-profile high Christian leaders who've, who've crashed and burned. And you know who they are. They're, they're Driscoll, Hybels, Fletcher, uh, Zacharias, Houston. And you'll also be aware of leaders who have less high-profile from your circles who've also fallen to the ground or been bullies or unfaithful or whatever. And in almost every case, as far as I can tell, their ministries did not start out that way. So what went wrong? And how, how, do you guard against, how do you guard against that? I just want to talk about one issue that I think is really quite prominent and one we need to think about. It's the problem of isolation in leadership. As far as I can tell, all those high-profile uh, leaders, they isolated themselves and avoided the possibility of people speaking into their lives and holding up the gospel mirror for them to reflect into and reflect on. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 5, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every town. And as I said earlier, there's a lot that's been written on the value of having a, a plurality of elders. Now, let me say, even at the most basic point, having a plurality of elders in various cities is smart. Lots of People discipling others just makes sense to me as far as I can tell. And so it's at least saying that. But, you know, I also think there's such a value in having fellowship with others uh, so that others who are teaching the word of God can teach you the word of God and speak into your life as you partner in the gospel together. Uh, I've been richly blessed to have people who do that for me. When I first got out of college, the senior minister at Trinity, the rector at the time, was a guy called Reg Piper. And uh, he spent time, he took took me, uh, 
on board as his son to train me in the gospel. You hear Paul talking about Titus as his son. Well, Reg did that with me in all sorts of different ways. I remember one conversation I had with him one day where he said this to me. I'll just read it because I want to get it right. He said, Paul, it would be really nice if when someone gave you some advice, you could just occasionally let them think you didn't already know it. (laughs) So it's it's subtly Adelaide. Um, But friends, he was a man who was committed to my godliness. He trained me in all sorts of different areas, taught me all sorts of different skills, uh, but he did want me to grow more like Christ, and so he said the tough things to me. Just a couple of years ago, one of the staff who works with me or for me, a guy called Jeff Lynn, I was having a catch-up with him, as I regularly do, and uh, I was having a real whinge about one of the other staff and uh, just grumbling about this other staff member. And Jeff said to me, he said, Paul, I don't think it's godly of you to be disparaging uh, this other partner in the gospel that we work with like that. Now, let me say, Jeff's really enjoying his new ministry role somewhere else, you know. (laughs) Not not true. Uh, Let me say, I'm so thankful for brothers like that uh, who will speak honestly the truth of the gospel and not let me get away with godlessness. He was exactly right. I've been in a breakfast group with half a dozen men who are all 10 years older than me and I've been in that, that group with them now for about 20 years. There have been a few changes, but these are all guys who are in front of me in the gospel and they don't owe me anything. They're all men who've modelled how to live the Christian life the next stage on from me. One of these guys has a wife with him in a wheelchair that he has nursed in that wheelchair for 20 years. A one, he is a one-man woman, right? very faithful. Uh, but these guys, uh, they don't need to... Uh, pump up my ego, Uh, they don't need to uh, play to my weaknesses, they will speak the truth because they actually care for me. Some of you will be in teams, um, as members of teams, and you'll be working for somebody and you're so thankful for the the gifts and the strengths they bring in Christian ministry uh, to the situation. And the way in which, you know, you can see the powerful way in which they're impacting through the way in which God has gifted them. But my guess is you'll also have concerns, maybe about issues of godliness that are surfacing. But you don't feel like it's worthwhile tackling it? Because the other things just balance it up and weigh it up so much. Can I say it is worth tackling it? Because this person that you work with and alongside, their godliness and their faithfulness to God, it does count. Be concerned for their godliness. Be concerned for their integrity. And then let me just finish by saying uh, we do need to hold firmly to the truth of the gospel. Uh, This letter is to a young church uh, where there are false teachers who are undermining people's confidence in the gospel. We're not talking about a difference of opinion here. Salvation's at stake. Can I say, I think it actually is a tough time to be a Christian in Australia. 
I think it's a tough time to be a Bible teacher in Australia. But if you are a Bible teacher, if you have that privileged role, then can I say that's exactly what it is? It is an extraordinary privilege. Yeah, it's a contested space. Yes, you'll find yourself getting absolutely exhausted at times. Of course, there will be discouragements. But friends, here is the amazing thing. We have been entrusted with this trustworthy message. And as we speak the gospel, God in his kindness causes eternity to break into history. And people's lives are saved. And people's lives are totally transformed. And I don't know about you, uh, but I don't want to be doing anything else than that. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a kind God who showered us with mercy and grace. And Father, here we sit. Uh, we're a room full of leaders involved in ministry in different ways in churches, some some pastors, uh, some elders in uh, church contexts, some serving in various ministry roles. And Father, we pray that you'll keep refreshing us in the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, uh, that it will fill our hearts to overflowing, that we'll keep coming back to your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Heavenly Father, we do pray uh, that you'll... As you do that, you'll keep transforming us and making us more into the image of your son. Keep growing us in godliness and faithfulness. Keep helping us to be good brothers and sisters to each other. Uh, good uh, fathers with sons, sons with fathers, uh, mothers with daughters, daughters with mothers, uh, as we disciple one another in the truth of the gospel. Uh, Father, we pray uh, that in your kindness you'll help us to run the race and to be faithful in sticking with the gospel because we know it's, it's only by the gospel people are saved. We know it's only by the gospel people's lives and households are transformed. And so, Father, we pray we'll never resort to other tactics, other strategies, other messages, except the one you have delivered faithfully to us and help us to be faithfully delivering it to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. This talk has been brought to you by the Gospel Coalition Australia. Visit our website at thegospelcoalition.org.au to find other resources for your encouragement.